The Earth, how old is it? Did people ride on raptors? What is a raptor? This person we're interviewing actually believes the world is 6,000 years old? Absolutely. I looked on their website, quote, We believe that by direct act, God created the earth and all that's in it. We hold to a literal interpretation of Genesis, and that means creation in six 24-hour days, a young earth and the Genesis flood. We reject the theories of evolution and the accompanying belief in billions of years of earth history, end quote. I have a feeling there's some anti-science, crazy conspiracy theorist here. Well, actually, he's a scientist. So be open, Ryan. Don't be such an old, fuddy-duddy old earther. Welcome, listeners, to this episode of the Scripture and Plain Reason podcast. An engaging podcast where we discuss the authority and clarity of Scripture. God's Word is true, and God's Word is clear. My name is Ryan. And my name is Brian. Listeners, we have a great episode for you here today. We have a guest. This is our first guest, and we are super excited to have him join us, and uh, we get to learn alongside him as he shares a lot of his experience and knowledge. So, Brian, why don't you introduce our guest? Great. This is a real privilege to have Dave Wetzel with us from uh, New Hampshire. Dave and I were a part of the same ministry in Concord, New Hampshire, Trinity Baptist Church for about 18 years, and uh, Dave grew up in New Hampshire, married to Gloria, has two children, and now has a son-in-law as well. He received his Bachelor of Science degree in Physics in 1987 from Bob Jones University. He was the president of Capital Cash Registers for 25 years, and uh, I think he recently received a Master's of Science in Biological Sciences from Clemson University. I'm a Tiger fan, so that was really good to see. And he's the founder and president of Genesis Park, uh, genesispark.com. You can visit the website there. And besides virtual presence since 1999, Genesis Park has a number of part-time research projects, including research into possible living dinosaurian creatures. And Dave is the author of a few books. I think your first book, Dave, was Chronicles of Dinosauria. Um, I've read Dino Dave's Adventures and Apologetics, book one which was incredibly fascinating. I know it was written for a younger audience, but I enjoyed it. And I should say, on the website, I noticed that there's also a couple DVDs that you can order. Um, one of them I was especially interested in, one of your ventures or your expeditions looking for a nocturnal flying creature. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that in a minute. And there's also the availability of some Genesis Park swag, hat, shirt, and I even saw a necktie that you can make a statement with. Dave, I kind of gave you a little intro there, but uh, I didn't give anything besides your resume, really. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your faith in Christ, about your family, ministry? Well, hello, Ryan. Hello, Brian. Let me just say it's a joy to be able to join you folks for this episode. Appreciate the opportunity to share my passion for creation, evolution, origins, dinosaurs, when I was a young man, I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, and I came to a point of faith in Jesus Christ in a time when my, my mom did an evening devotional with us, and she would read every evening and uh, with, with the children, and I, I expressed my faith in Christ as a young man, and I sometimes was a bit jealous as I was older that I didn't have some very exciting testimony. Some of my friends, you know, they were bubblegum addicts one day, and then 
they became Christians and they never touched the stuff again. And it was like this, these really dramatic testimonies. And I had gotten saved very young. And so I didn't have maybe some of those, some of that excitement. But as I got older, I became so thankful for the privilege of growing up in a Christian home and having had that parents that loved Jesus Christ. My mom would read to us in the evenings and, and we just simply believed. We saw it in their life. And so that was, that was exciting. Uh, but then people wonder, you know, where'd you go wrong? What happened that you turned into Dino Dave? How'd you go from being like this ordinary young man to being this dino nut that goes around doing these talks? And wherever I go, I have to credit the Boston Museum of Science. Because when I was in ninth grade, my school, Christian school, did a field trip to the Boston Museum of Science. And at least at that time, I think maybe still today, they have this triceratops and this this big, beautiful triceratops skeleton and all the bones. And I just remember it, the impression it made on me. I was just in awe of this. Like, this is real. This is a real dinosaur skeleton right here, right in front of me. And I, of course, I'm looking it all over. And then there's this plaque down on the bottom that says this dinosaur, you know, lived 60 million years ago and in the Cretaceous period. And then, you know, before man evolved. And, and I remember just how it upset me that the science, the bones, was being mixed in with somebody's interpretation and speculation about origins and actually got into a little bit of an argument with some staff that day right at the Boston Museum of Science. So That's I surprising. Credit, yeah, so I credit them with getting me started <laughs> in the origins debate and this um, this love for apologetics, really. Uh, and so then, and then I, of course, I got a science degree and, and began to speak in Sunday schools and some churches around New England. But it wasn't until I was able to sell the family business that I've been working at that really went full-time into doing the research, writing, and traveling around the country. And that's, that's what I do these days. Well, Dave, I, I'm just super excited to talk to you today because one of the things that I've struggled with is where do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? And We'll hopefully get into a little bit of that. But before we jump in, I, I did want to just set up how we're going to structure this episode. And then I'm happy to share, this is basically part one. We're going to have a part two as well. So this is going to be two episodes with Dave. And we're going to start out with this episode focused on really creation versus evolution. And a lot of this is going to be some uh, reinforcement of what Brian and I spoke about over the course of the past few episodes and then part two will be focused much more on dinosaurs and fossils. So stay tuned for that episode as well. Brian, you ready to jump in? Yeah, let's do it. Day? Let's do it. Dave, thanks again for joining us. I wanted to start with, with your travels. They have sped up since you sold the family business. So you're in churches, you're in Christian schools, probably in some public schools as well, or I guess probably in some of your travels. But I really was more interested in what you're seeing when you're with believers in churches, uh, where they're landing, because one of our concerns has been noticing that Christians are moving away from uh, trusting a literal understanding of the historical narrative of Genesis 1 to 11. So I, I kind of wanted to see what you're seeing, um, who's someone out, out there speaking on the road and in churches. Are they landing more in uh, the old gap theory? Is it more of the day age? Is it uh, theistic evolution? What are you seeing? When I first started doing this, going on the road, speaking around the country, and even in a number of foreign countries, 
uh, the folks that leaned toward an old earth leaned toward the day age accommodation. Uh, and for those in the audience that may not be familiar with that, it's the idea that each of the days of creation actually was a long period of time. It's the Hebrew word yom, Y-O-M. And it's the belief that maybe this isn't talking about a literal 24-hour day, but rather a stretch of time, kind of like in the Revelation and some of the prophecies, it talks about the day of the Lord or the day of Jacob's trouble, which isn't a specific 24-hour period. It's more the whole end times. Uh, so there is some flexibility in that Hebrew word. I don't believe the day-age theory. I don't think it, it fits at all. And, and so we could talk about that. But that used to be the more prominent view. Of late, it seems that the, the theistic evolutionary perspective has gained a lot more steam, uh, where people are moving to a less, even a less literal position. They're not worried so much even about the days. They're not even so much worried about um, the actual flow of the Genesis 1 through 2 narrative. They're more uh, just going to buy the whole farm on evolution and just kind of take the Genesis 1 or 2 as more of a, a moral story, kind of almost like a parable that Jesus would have told, not literal history, um, no necessarily even literal Adam. Uh, this just kind of a, we're supposed to get some moral points in there. And so that seems to be the more common one. I don't really see gap theory out there. I've not heard that. Uh, I'm sure there are still some folks that, that do hold to that. Uh, but we can talk about any of those three. But this seems like the theistic evolutionists, the ones that are growing more popular in some of the some of the older circles these days. Yeah, and just a follow-up, um, we have given some definition to some of those theories. When you run into the theistic evolution thought pattern, or that's the position that you're hearing about, what are some of the places that you go first trying to help push them towards more of a, a reliance and a confidence in the historical narrative, the literal um, description that you find in Genesis 1 and 2? What's your first approach as an apologist as a believer? So the, 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 the number one issue is biblical authority. Uh, that's the one that, that I, I can't compromise on. If some people just generally believe in an old earth, to me, I have a hard time saying that's a fundamental of faith. Okay, I have a hard time separating from somebody strictly over the age of the earth. But where I have to draw the line is at a literal atom. So if folks are kind of a little fuzzy on it, and sometimes they just legitimately haven't really thought it through, I try to have some grace about these things. And sometimes you can win them over just by kind of going through some of the really great evidence for a young earth. But, but here's what seems to, seems to make sense to people is this whole idea of death before Adam's sin. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we, we read that wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. And so we would understand from Romans chapter 5, there was no death before Adam's sin. That was part of the curse, was this, this introduction of death. And yet, when we look at all these layers, which supposedly go back millions of years, billions of years, they're full of fossils, right? And so what are the fossils? Well, they're basically things that died, and they were preserved. But the Bible's pretty clear there was no death. And over and over again, God goes out of his way of saying, hey, it was good, 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 and finally wraps it up, it was very good. Death isn't good. Death 
disease, decay, mutations, carnivory. There's nothing good about any of this. And some folks have tried to twist it to being good, like, well, maybe that's what allowed evolution to go forward. So it's good in that sense. Or maybe we can learn from disease, so maybe it isn't so bad. But let's face it, it just it's bad. I mean, it really is bad. We don't like it when we get sick. We sure don't like it when we lose people to death. It's this enemy, and it's really that curse. It's the curse is the result of the sin. So I take in the Romans 5.12. Another passage that's helpful, Jesus was asked about marriage, and he said this. He said, in the beginning, God made them male and female. Now, follow me on this just for a minute. If we hold to a theistic evolution, old earth position, they're going to say that the Big Bang happened somewhere roughly maybe 14.5 billion years ago, okay? And then you start to get the earth cooling down to the point where you get liquid water. And about maybe 4 billion years ago, you you start to get some simple life forms, maybe blue-green algae, uh, cyanobacteria. And then, you know, that goes on for a long time, really billions of years. And then you get about 600 million years ago, you start to get all these this Cambrian explosion. You have all these invertebrates. You have all the major phyla come into existence. And then you have, uh, you know, the, the first creatures that are going to be fishes, the Devonian period, and then a creature's going to crawl up on land in the Permian. And then eventually we're going to have the great age of reptiles, the Mesozoic, right? Like the Jurassic and, and um, Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous. And then eventually the Cenozoic, the mammals. But that, that's at the almost very end of the timeline. If you looked at that whole timeline I just stretched out, mammals and man doesn't come about until just a few million years ago. It's the literally the tail end of it all. And so where is Jesus saying, in the beginning, God made the male and female? And did Jesus not know? Well, of course Jesus knew. He he's he's the creator, right? And so this this is a problem. And then we see, uh, of course, when we talk about these days of creation, this phrase evening and morning. Evening and morning was the first day. Evening and morning was the second day. When there's an evening and a morning, it really is hard to stretch that into a million years or a billion years. That's problematic. And finally, I take people to Exodus 20, where it says, In six days the Lord God made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. And, of course, that's used as a pattern for us to work for six days and rest for a day and make that a day of worship. And so it it just seems to have this big equal sign between literal six days that God worked in creation and what we're supposed to do. There's a pattern there. So those are a few of the key arguments that I go to biblically. Super helpful. You know, that passage in Exodus 20 that you mentioned, I kind of refer to that as the mic drop moment. It's where the Lord, we're told in Deuteronomy, actually carved them with his hands. Mm. So here he says on the fourth commandment, this is exactly like what I did when I created everything in the Yamein, the the Yam, the the one, the single 24-hour day. So you're supposed to rest just like he created it. Dave, you know, when you think about the young earth believers and these individuals typically believe that the earth is 6,000, sometimes 7,000 years old. Talk to us a little bit about why you specifically believe the earth is 6,000 years old. Well, the, the, I have to say the number one reason is, is the straightforward understanding of God's word. Uh, that's just so important to me. And, and I understand it's not a fundamental of faith in the sense that it, it, it's the gospel hinges on this. But when people 
begin to doubt whether we can just read and believe the Bible, that's when it becomes a problem. And if you don't want to believe the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, well, can you believe it in John chapter 3? And uh, people say, well, I don't want to go literal. I want to keep things kind of a little bit more flexible. I, I don't like a very literal reading of these type of things. And and so, for example, when they, God saw that it was good, God said it was good, they go kind of loosey-goosey on that. Well, what about when God says heaven is going to be good? Uh, maybe are we going to get to heaven and find out that there's really death and struggle and, and mutations and diseases and pain and sorrow there? You see what happens, Ryan, is that words are important. And how we understand God and how we interpret God's word in Genesis really becomes a pattern for the rest of the Bible. If you can read Genesis 1, 2, 3 and say, well, I don't want to take that as literal history, okay? I don't want to take that as, as narrative. I'm going to take that as more poetic, okay? Well, how about 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9? Well, you start getting through the flood. A lot of these folks, these old earthers, they want to take that as poetic too. So, well, when are you going to just start reading this historical narrative and believing it as reliable history? Uh, most of them will say, well, maybe about the time of Abram, we'll start. Believing. But the text, you see, isn't different. The Psalms are different. We see a lot of simile, a lot of metaphor, a lot of words that would just indicate, even if you and I were talking, we can get it when people are using analogy and metaphor and just poetic language. That's different than the genre of Genesis. It just is. The, the history, the historical sort of discussion it just flows from Genesis 1 all the way through the rest of the book. So this is important. But then also we have some very good scientific evidences. I'm talking things like the moon is, every time it goes around, it's going a little further away from the earth. It's just over an inch or so. But literally, if you start taking these things back billions and billions of years, we would have lost the moon by now. It wouldn't be going around the earth. Uh, comets. Now, comets are small things. They're not big like our sun or some of these stars that are out there. Uh, and these comets, they're, they're, they're coming through, and we see this big tail on them. Well, why is there a big tail? Well, there's a big tail because they're losing mass. They're burning up. Sometimes they escape outside the solar system. Sometimes they crash into a planet. We shouldn't have any comets left that have been millions of years. Erosion rates. Uh, in less than 20 million years, all the mountains in North America should be eroded flat. That's how fast things are eroding. Um, people say, well, the plates are coming together and pushing up and making new mountains. Well, okay, you can say that all the mountains are new, which would be the position that the creations say, but the evolutionists also want us to believe that these mountains are billions of years old and that the fossils found on them are millions, hundreds of millions of years old. Uh, so you kind of can't have it both ways. And then ocean salinity. Here's one that your listeners will appreciate. It's pretty easy to understand. Everybody's had an older brother or older sister who in their mean nastiness ducked your head underwater and you get a big mouthful of, of, of ocean water. What does it taste like? It's lucky, right? It's salty. Why is it salty? Well, the reason it's so salty compared to lakes and rivers is because the rain percolates down through the rock layers and, and the brooks are flowing over the rocks and it's melting minerals, not just salt, but you know, other things potassium, calcium. It's carrying these minerals down to the ocean, but the sun is evaporating up pure water, pure H2O into the clouds, which then goes and rains again. So this cycle goes on and every year the oceans get saltier and saltier and saltier. Uh, and so they may only be whatever, uh, three, 4% salt now, but we can see how much this is increasing 
we go backwards in time and you know not too many years ago i mean certainly not on the order of millions of years ago the oceans would have been pure water so here's just a few arguments just a few simple arguments ocean salinity uh, the moon the erosion rates comets just very common sense evidences that the earth is young i really love that and i'm i'm glad that you didn't bring up the genealogies because that's often one that individuals go to immediately and you brought up different ones which just adds to the the clarity of the earth being young and you know i want to go back real quick to what you said in the at the start that god's word is clear and i'll try to use pastor brian saying the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things amen just a tag team on that real quick you know all through the years the hebrew people just believed the earth was relatively young that you could just I mean, genealogies or whatever but they just believed it was young and so really is god trying to, to to make things obscure here that we can't just read it and understand it no no we shouldn't have to have a, a degree in geology to be able to understand how how god is communicating here and we shouldn't have to go to evolutionists who are so oftentimes atheistic to tell us oh that's what our bible means oh okay we didn't get that just from reading the bible so listen i understand i'm i'm a person who's been in some science circles, as Pastor Brian said earlier, I go to secular colleges and they don't love me. <laughs> it's nice to be loved. It's nice to be, uh, you know, you want to be popular in the lab group. You don't want to have everybody else, you know, in your science circles kind of look at you like you get three eyeballs. Uh, and so I get it. I get the pressure to want to conform to this mantra that the earth is billions of years old, but it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with the, the straightforward understanding of God's word. And hey, guys, it's a fun time to be a creationist right now. It doesn't fit with things like soft tissue and dinosaur bones. It doesn't fit with, you know, some of the things that are coming out like carbon-14 and coal. It's just a fun time to be a creationist right now because we're just seeing more and more evidence that the earth is young, a lot younger than what the scientific community has been proposing. What is the best argument, Dave, that you get thrown at you from the evolutionists? You just gave some great points, just a super outline. I wanted to write that down. I'll probably go back and listen to this episode and jot it all down. But what is their best shot that you consider, hey, that is a really strong argument, and maybe it's set you on your heels, maybe it's caused you to have to go back into the study uh, to come back out with an answer. But what would you say was is the evolutionist? maybe even the theistic evolutionist's best argument. Now, you're specifically talking about age of the earth or the argument for biological evolution? Biological evolution is what I'm referring okay. to. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so there's a handful of key arguments for, for evolutionary theory. And to me, the strongest one is this pattern of life. And this is seen in two areas. It's seen morphologically, that is by the the characteristics and shapes of creatures' bodies. And, and for example, we have reptiles with certain distinct traits morphologically. Their bodies have these distinctive traits. And we can say, okay, that's a reptile. Mammals, again, we have these distinctive traits, you know, hair, memory glands, uh, reptiles, scales, laying eggs. And, and so you have cold-blooded, you have these distinctive things. And animals and plants fall into mostly very clean categories species will fall into these genre and families and orders and classes 
of animals. And so what the evolutionists will say is the reason why mammals, whether they're swimming mammals like a dolphin or whether they're flying mammals like a bat or whether they're walking mammals like your dog, the reason why they have these similarities is because they shared a common ancestor. And that common ancestor passed along these traits. So, uh, for example, bats fly in a very different way than birds. Bats don't have feathers. Uh, bats have this pentadactyl limb, this five fingers that is more similar to your five fingers that you use for grasping than anything that's in, in a, a bird, uh, which kind of has this you know prominent wing uh, bones with their arm, they're flying. So, but the bat, there had to have been this common ancestor that then carried it through. And if God had decided how to make flying creatures real well with feathers, why make the bat this odd little mammal out there? And so, no, the evolutionists would say the swimming and the flying and the walking mammals shared a common ancestor. The birds all shared a common ancestor. The reptiles all shared a common ancestor. And they would challenge this creationist. Why would God create things in groups? Why would God create things in, in these clumps? You have smaller groups, families, which then, for example, dogs and cats and um, bats and uh, dolphins, they're all distinct. They're all different. Um, but at the same time, they're all closer to each other than they are to the reptiles uh, or the birds or the amphibians. And so why would God create things in these classes? Why would God make it look like evolution? It's God playing with our mind. So that's the question. And we see it not just in the body and the morphology, but also genetically. We see these cascade of similarities. Think about Russian dolls. We have one doll nesting in another, nesting in another, nesting in another. And that's kind of when you look at uh, the kingdoms and the phylums and this, this, this class order family genus species, it all fits in this nice hierarchy that ties it all together. And the evolutionists will say, well, we had a common ancestor and it just carried on generation to generation, generation. That, in my opinion, is the most compelling argument. And I got to ask the follow-up, how do you answer them? So we tend to have a, a parochial view of anti-creationism or um, godlessness. And, and so the atheists are all the vogue right now. That's all the rage is to be an atheist and, of course, an evolutionary atheist. And, and, and Richard Dawkins is celebrated and has all these best-selling books and stuff. And um, yet when God designed creation, he had to think not just in terms of a 21st century rage of atheism and evolutionists. He had to think in terms of a message that would resonate throughout the ages. And the greater error throughout history has not been atheism, has not been evolutionism. Uh, you go back to the ancients, the pagans, there just weren't a lot of atheistic societies. Uh, and, and even up through the Middle Ages, there just weren't. I mean, the, the more common error is polytheism. That is, the Greeks had this pantheon of gods, you know, Zeus and, and uh, Athena and, and Her Hermes and all these different Cupid, I mean, all these gods, right, fighting in heavens. And, and their fighting is what causes the lightning and the thunder. And we can explain this various phenomena through all these different gods. 
and, and on and on and on. The, all these different gods. Uh, and even today, you know, the Hindu religion, you got all these gods. So polytheism throughout human history has been the greater error. And so when God tries to communicate with creation, we call it general revelation. That's what the theologians call it, general revelation. Just going out and looking at the world around about us. What can we learn about God? Okay, we, 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 Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is weary. There's no searching his understanding. The prophet is incredulous. How could you not know this? How can you not understand that God is omnipotent, that God is omniscient, that God is eternal? You should be able to get those three things just from looking at creation, the vastness of the stars, the incredible intelligence uh, in, in creatures and in, and in life, and, the, and then time, whoever existed, Whoever made the space mass time continuum must exist outside of time. This is general revelation. So God's trying to lay out general revelation. He has to fight against polytheism. That's the greater error. And so what does he do? God ties together all the organisms in a pattern that shows it is not the work of multiple gods, multiple competing gods, but rather he, he lays out this beautiful tapestry where everything ties together. And, 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 and that's the message is that there's one God. That's the point of this thing is that God is sending a message and it might not be optimally laid out to argue against atheism. Okay. But God has to lay this out in a multifaceted way that communicates more than just theism. And so even today, atheists are a minority of, I think, 15% in the U.S. population. The greater error is, you know, either rank polytheism or maybe a deism. That type of a thinking is, is more of an error today. So that's my response. Great. All right. Well, Dave, we're going to wrap here in a second, but I did have one additional question for you before we wrap. And uh, Brian passed on a seminar that you did, Faith, Flood, and Fossils. And I watched it and it was fantastic. And you had an interesting layout that focused on the difference between creationists and evolutionists. Uh, creationists believe in origin by design. Evolutionists believe in natural origin. Creationists believe in catastrophism. Evolutionists believe in uniformitarian gradualism. This next one, though, I, I'm hoping you can go deeper because as I was watching, this just jumped out at me and I never heard anyone talk about it this way. The creationist believes in decreasing order versus the evolutionist believing in increasing order. Can you elaborate a little bit on the difference between those two? Because oftentimes I think you'll hear that uh, the human brain is evolving to such a point that we're becoming smarter and smarter. And so I think that's where the increasing order comes from on the evolutionist side. But we'd love to hear your perspective on that one. Thank you, Ryan. It's a little broader than that. You have to get from molecules to man, right? I mean, if you're going to explain origins, you got to start with coming out of the Big Bang is mostly hydrogen. Uh, and so they, you hear about things like cosmic evolution. Uh, which is how, how do we get stars, this clump, this matter clumping together and igniting to form stars. Uh, then you have to, in those stars and in supernova, you start getting baked out some of the higher chemicals. We have chemical evolution. These chemicals are necessary for organic material like humans. Okay. Uh, and so then eventually you're going to get an earth where you get liquid water, and then we're going to have life from non-life. Okay. And, and so that's an evolutionary step. And then you have to eventually, once you've got a 
simple form of life, you have to start getting macro evolution. That is whole new kinds of life, more complex things. And let's face it, life from non-life is a massive challenge for evolutionists. It really is. The simplest imaginable living cell is hopelessly complex. It's radically complex. Uh, Darwin didn't really understand it. I mean, it was like a kind of a bag of goo back in his days. But today we are just really beginning to understand that it's more like a city. The cell wall is like the city wall. And inside you've got transportation systems and you've got uh, waste disposal and you've got information libraries in the nucleus. You've got all this stuff going on. And, and so now you've got uh, organic evolution. But then we have to say, okay, how do we start adding features like eyeballs? and wings, and nervous systems, and human immune systems, and blood clotting cascades, and, and uh, uh, sonar and bats. I mean, all this, these ridiculously complicated biological systems. And so uh, again, I tell you, it has to go from relatively simple to more complicated. And not necessarily in the straight line. Evolutionists would ne have never said that. They, they think, you know, sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. But the big picture, you've got to somehow get from molecules to man. I mean, if you want to explain origins, you have to. Otherwise, you need a creator at some point along the way. So that's why this simple to complex. Now, there are some things that we would both recognize. Okay, we're living a little longer now than we did in the Middle Ages. And people are a little bit taller. But a lot of it is nutrition and modern medicines, you know, and smarter. That's a little dubious. I don't know. I mean, certainly we have greater knowledge today. Uh, and and that's that's true. Um, but if you were to take somebody from years ago and put them through our school system, I, I suspect they'd do just as well, or maybe better than we would. But let's talk about the creation perspective. So we would expect that God made things good, perfect, really. Adam and Eve were in a perfect position, perfect garden. And then with the curse, things have gone downhill. And then even over time, mutations degrade information systems. Things go downhill. Uh, we were on a one-way ticket to extinction. There's new diseases cropping up that, that weren't there when I was a kid. And uh, so we've got medicines that we combat this stuff. But what are mutations? They're basically mistakes. So think about it this way, Ryan. Think about taking a nice, crisp photograph, putting it into a copy machine, and starting to make copies and making a thousand copies. But I don't mean a thousand copies of the first one. I mean, throw the first one away, make a copy of the second one, the third one, and then throw the second one away, take the third one and make a copy of the fourth one. Well, what's going to happen about the thousand copies down? Well, it's going to get bad because tiny little errors are accumulating and mistakes are being made and little bits of lint and, you know, little scratches on the screen and stuff happens. That's the nature of the world we're living in. It's going downhill. And so we can say, all right, let's, let's, take a, let's take a look in the fossil record and let's take a little walk backwards in time and see what we got. Well, the sneaky little secret of the fossil record is that things in the past were bigger, arguably healthier, and lived longer than modern extant varieties of that same kind. We're talking uh, rats. In the fossil record that have found, you know, two tons, the size of, of an automobile. I mean, you, you don't want to try to set a rat trap for that bad boy. Uh, dragonflies with a three-foot wingspan. Uh, millipedes that are eight feet. You know, I mean, this is just so massive insects. 
Um, the megalodon. What would the mousetrap have to be? What size would it have to be? <laughs> that Massive. Bad. I mean, you don't, you don't hire you know, an exterminator who comes with a mousetrap. He comes with an elephant rifle. Um, but, I mean, so across the board, and, of course, there were giant people, and people lived 900 years. So things are going downhill. Okay, we got cattails that are 60 feet tall. We got grasshoppers that are the size of a modern cat, you know, three foot grasshoppers. So all these things are bigger and healthier and lived longer in the past. And so the evidence stacks up not to things going from molecules to man evolution, but rather from good to degenerate de-evolution. Very helpful. That's awesome context. Thank you. Great. Well, Dave, this has been awesome. I'm looking forward to our next episode as well, where we get to talk about dinosaurs and, and fossils. Um, but I think this is a good spot to wrap. It's been a pleasure and uh, look forward to hearing any questions that perhaps some of your listeners have. Pokey head out to my website and I'd be delighted to respond. Fantastic. Well, my name is Ryan. And my name is Brian. And I'm Dino Dave. Join us next time for more scripture and plain reason. The scriptures are true and the scriptures are clear. 